millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On DAB, digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM, this is Motty Meats. The undisputed king of commentators relives big stories with a well-known name from way back when. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. I'm John Motson, and on this edition of Motty Meets, I'm joined by the man who led Southampton to FA Cup glory in 1976. You'll hear that unmistakable Geordie voice in just a moment as I welcome Laurie McMenemy. I was running around the pitch in the afternoon on my own. I looked in the corner, there's Sir George Merrick and the chairman. And I thought, well, this is it. And the chairman said, manager, sort it out. Turned around, walked away, and Sir George winked at me. And he smiled and he said, get rid of the pain in your side. Graham was a big one on the blackboard and sheets of paper and going through. And the players were bored with it. And Gaza would say, what, what's he doing? What's he talking about? And I'd say, shut up and listen, you, you know, because he was a natural born gifted player, Gaza. I was looking at the people next to the Queen, my board of directors, and one or two had tears down their cheeks. And I looked at them and I thought, well done. You know, that's for you. You stood by me, and this is a, one of the best days of their life. You know, to sit with the Queen and to see their team pick the cup up. Well, that particular FA Cup final remains very special in my memory because when the game was over, I helped Laurie to carry the cup down to the interview room after Southampton's historic victory over Manchester United at Wembley. More of that shortly. But first, Laurie, let's begin with your early years. Born in Gateshead in the northeast, before the outbreak of the Second World War. And Laurie, can I start by suggesting the northeast when you were born and when you grew up was a real hotbed compared to today. Sunderland had won the Cup and the League in the 30s and Newcastle won three FA Cups in the early 50s. Well, so they should have done. I mean, they were the best teams around at the time. Not that I uh, saw much of it then because uh, I grew up in the avenues, which are still there, I believe. And you played football on the cobbles outside and the lampposts were the goals. Uh, the nearest I got to Newcastle was you could go over there, I mean, walk over the bridge and get up there and wait outside. And the gates opened with 10 minutes to go to let people out. And then the kids could nip in and you'd climb up and then they would pass you down over their heads and you could sit on the wall. So you catch the last five or six minutes. But no, it was, it was everybody's dream. 
as a youngster uh, and a working man. That was his relief and his release at the end of the week. The football, Newcastle, Sunderland were all the same. Now, everybody gets a label in football, don't they? And one that's often been ascribed to you is that you were a guardsman. Yes. Can you just clarify that and tell me what that involved? Nulli secundus. Do you know what that means? <laughs> no, you go on. Well, you should do. You're educated. Come on. It's the motto of the Coldstream Guards. Nulli secundus, second to none. And I got a letter from the Queen. And it said, would you mind popping down to Catrum? <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody got it in those days. It was national service. Mm. And when you got to 18, no matter what you were doing. And um, it was actually in the January after. You, you had a medical first. And when I had the medical, the fellow looked at me and said, you're about six foot four. Because somebody had said to me, try and get in the pay call. That's the best one. You sit behind the desk for two years. And uh, I mentioned it and the fellow said, you've got no chance. Six foot four, you'll be in the guards. And that's what happened. I I went in the Coldstream Guards, two years. Now, on a football front, Newcastle United briefly? Yes, well, everybody's dream, as I said. And uh, in those days, they had a, what you would call academy now, juniors, etc. And it was called the N's, the letter N. And um, I was delighted when I got signed up for that lot. And I, but then you realise after a while, you're not the only one. There's hundreds, you know. And um, had games at different levels, but you're never going to get in the first team. Then I was sort of farmed out to Gateshead, my hometown team, who were a league club and... Uh, we used to go down there when I f- could eventually get enough money to go and watch a game. And uh, Ridge of Park, it was. Mm-hmm. I was centre-half, but you would never get in because the, there was two brothers in the team, very famous, the Callender brothers, Tommy and Jackie. And uh, Tommy was a fantastic centre-half. He was voted in the top five in the whole country at one time. But it was terrific, uh, great, great experience. And um, years afterwards, of course... When I couldn't play anymore, I finished up going back to Gateshead as a coach. This is what I was going to say. You, 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 this is the start of your coaching career in, yeah. in a way, Laurie. And in 1964, you were appointed manager of non-league Bishop Auckland. Yes. Now, I've got a little story here before you oh. go. <laughs> I, I was then a local newspaper reporter in North London, and I was covering a club called Finchley in the Athenian League. Yeah. And Finchley drew Bishop Auckland in the FA Amateur Cup. Yes. And I stress the word amateur because it's no longer there, but no. they used to get 100,000 at the final then, as yeah, you'll well remember. Yes, did. You yeah. brought Bishop Auckland to Summers Lane Finchley, <laughs> and I can still remember you in your long leather coat conducting the interviews by the side of the pitch. Yes. And that was the first time I ever met Laurie McMenemy, and you won 3 1. Is that why you got funny quotes afterwards? Is it? Uh, yeah, gave me the idea of the <laughs> sheepskin. Now, Bishop Auckland came as a result of... I'd been working at Gateshead, because uh, when I came out of the army, I, I did an injury in Germany, playing for the army, and I couldn't play much. I wasn't that good anyway, but I couldn't play much longer. And that's when I went and took me coaching courses. In those days, you needed a preliminary badge. You could do that locally. A full badge, you had to go residential. And it was at Hoffel Agricultural College up in Durham. And uh, the man running it then was a bloke called George Wardle. He contacted me a few weeks after I'd gotten my badge. I didn't realise at the time he'd been offered the job at Bishop Auckland. He was already at Crook Town and he turned it down and he nominated me. And um, up till then, Bishop Auckland had been organised and run and teams picked and everything by the committee. Mm. And I think I was the first sort of what you would call a proper manager where they let you have control. And um, it was a fantastic experience. Now, things moved on quickly. And a big move for you, in a sense, because 
you spent two years as a coach at Sheffield Wednesday. Well, the reason that happened was when I was at Bishop Auckland, uh, the manager at Sunderland was Alan Brown, bless him. And um, I contacted him and I said, is there any chance you could send a team over, please, for a pre-season game? And he literally more or less brought the first team. And um, we got to know each other. I think he must have kept his eye on me for the following year. And then he then moved from Sunderland to Sheffield Wednesday. Um, I don't know how long he'd been there, but he contacted me and said, I'm coming to a game at Newcastle. And um, he got me a dress. He said, can I call in? And uh, it was amazing. The first thing he said was, because Anne said, you want a cup of tea and all that sort of thing? He said, yes. He said, now, Laurie, can you leave the room? I want to talk to your wife. And I thought, well, that's strange. And when I came back in, he'd said to Anne, I'm going to offer him a job at Sheffield, but it's no point if you're not going if you don't want to move and she said yes we'll come and uh and that was the start of it and that was what 1966 it I think. was you're spot on and uh off, off i went and uh then eventually i got the job at doncaster right uh, which wasn't far from sheffield of course of course you did and and successful your first managerial appointment you led them to the uh, old fourth division title and obviously promotion to the old third division yes and the chairman then mr tomko Cowie, was it? Um, he said, what a wonderful young man. Two years later, I got relegated. He said I was bleeping useless. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But that was all a learning experience, winning and losing as mm. well. Uh, like Rudyard Kipling said, as you well know, John, you're a learned man. If that's the poem, disaster that's the poem the every manager should yeah. read yeah. before he starts. And right. you've got to treat triumph and disaster. And um, I suffered both at Doncaster. I was lucky because the chairman of Grimsby was a wonderful man called Paddy Hamilton mm-hmm. and um, a lovely Irishman who had businesses in Grimsby and Doncaster. He must have kept his eye on me. And a week after losing my job at Doncaster, I was invited to an interview at Grimsby and um, I was given the job. I was told then I could take on 12 players, and I was allowed to get two more if there were free transfers. They had already got rid of the ones I wanted out. My first talk with the players, I said to the trainer, put them in the visiting dressing room, ready to give me first talk, impress everybody. And there was like a mist hanging around in the, in the room. And of course, I thought, well, the windows must be open because, you know, the ground there was near the Cleethorpes. Mm. You know, you've been there. Yeah, well. And uh, they used to have a thing called the sea fret. And I thought, well, that's coming in. But it wasn't that. When I looked around, it was me centre forward sitting in the corner puffing a pipe. <laughs> and it was Matt Tease. Different days. Who was a legend, a legend. My word. And he's still in Grimsby, bless him. Right, well, now, you led them to the fourth division title, and that was the first time, or the second time I actually met you, but the first time when I worked with you was we did a piece for the Football Focus, um, and before I went back to London, you gave me a parcel of fish. Yes. (laughs) That was a bit of a tradition in Grimsby then. Fish, fish, fish. You could smell Grimsby before you got there. Fish docks was the biggest thing. I took the players down to the fish docks one day, 8 o'clock in the morning, Half of them didn't know those two eight o'clocks in the same day, and the other half were only getting in. And <laughs> I, t- I took them round, and the dockers were calling them all sorts of fancy names and shouting down at them and all that. The players were walking around with their collars turned up, freezing cold. Afterwards, we all got together, big mugs of tea, it was lovely. Went back to the ground, I said, don't get changed, you're not training, go home. Never forget, they've got to do that every day of their work in life. 
to make enough money to come and watch you. And every now and again during that season, I'd remind them of that. I'd say, those doctors are out here, you know. Mm. And um, the first crowd, I think it was about four, four and a half thousand because it was a derby match, Scunthorpe. And the last crowd of that season was 22,489. 22, really? Witnessed the home victory <laughs> against Exeter City that yes. saw the club promoted. Yeah, we had to win to get promoted. <laughs> 22 and up. Yeah, and the club is a wonderful club. All those players' names are up on the wall in one of the rooms. Even my names are stuck up there. And um, people remember that. And it was because it's a lovely, lovely place, Grimsy. Two of the happiest years of our career. And in me, never forget the people there. It was lovely. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sports with Laurie McMenemy. Summer of 1973, Southampton came for you. And I yes. remember the sign on your office door said manager designate, which meant that you uh, were going to take over to succeed Ted Bates, yes. where he'd been for 18 years, by the way, yeah. in November of 1973. What exactly was the club like when you arrived and, and what were the things that you had to prioritise? Well, the designate bit showed you the loyalty that had to the previous manager. Ted was 18 years. He'd been everything, coach, trainer, player, the lot, and then manager for 18 years. And over the years of Ted's time, they'd had one or two younger fellas in as assistants or whatever, and they didn't think they would make manager. Right. So I I found out later on, I think people like Alan Brown and Don Reavy had uh, sort of re- recommended me and I, out of the blue, I got this call to go down. The interview went all right. And remember, the board were full of all the worldly English gentlemen. I mean, the, the chairman had refereed the World Cup final. George Reader, yeah. And um, we had people like Sir George Merrick, who owned half a Bournemouth. I mean, Merrick Park, uh, that was his. He owned a castle in Anglesey. And other people, Mr. Charles Chaplin, would you believe? Not the film star, but he was chairman of a company called Feathery Flake Limited. Uh, he wore a monocle and a fresh carnation every day. He wasn't well one day, and the chairman said to the, the doctor, keep an eye on him, get your tablets ready. And he pulled the plug for the air stewardess to come. Have you a glass of water, my dear? And she dashed off, brought the water. Thank you very much. He's getting the tablets ready. He pulled his carnation out and stuck it in the glass. They were the sort of gentlemen that I worked with. And they, they stood by me, they supported me. And the designate bit, I, sh- I, I, I should never, ever have agreed to it. But they were worried in case you didn't make it. But I took over from day one. Why wouldn't you? Because you're like on a trail. And I took over from day one, even though some people call you an assistant till November. All they did in November, because we were about fifth or sixth top, they dropped the designate bit. But I was the boss. From, I mean, why wouldn't they? I'd, I'd, I'd won the league at four previous clubs. But they wanted me there, and the title was wrong. But it carried on for the next, how long, 12 years? And it was uh, great working with them. The end of the first season wasn't uh, quite what you'd wanted. You no. went into the final game of the season away to Everton. I was there for match of the day, I remember it. Yeah, Needing to win. to win, which you did, but hoping that Birmingham City didn't. And unfortunately, relegation came your way. There was a bit of background to that game, Laurie, quite apart from the fact that so much hinged on it. You decided to drop the man who you, who's cap, who you inherited as captain, Terry Payne. Terry, yeah. Yeah, but there was a bit of trouble there. Well, Terry it? was probably the most... Uh, well, he's played more games than any other Southampton player ever, 800-plus. He was a legend. He was in the England World Cup squad, 66. But, of course, what people have got to remember, when I got there, he was 34. He was 35 at the end of that season. Being a winger, I mean, his legs had gone a bit. And... Um, 
I worked him out halfway through the season. He, he didn't like me, and I realised he wasn't helping me much, uh, especially after the November time, the New Year. We were we went into Easter safe. We played three games, Good Friday, Saturday, Easter, Monday. We came out looking over the shoulder. And that season was the first ever three teams went down. And we had to win the last game to stay up. Uh, I'd worked them out and I realised, and I brought them in on the Thursday after the training. I said, Terry, I'm not playing you on Saturday. Oh, can I ask you a question? And I'm thinking, he's going to say, well, why, why not? And he said, have I got to travel? I said, of course you have. Why? He said, well, I'd rather not. So I said, well, there's the door. And I think I said one or two other things. And he didn't go. And I found out afterwards he'd gone to Devon and Exeter races. Now, we needed to win. The atmosphere with the team was different without him. It was better, in a way. I should have worked it out earlier. And I know I'm upsetting some of the old legendary supporters, but I was there. They weren't in the rooms. And people like Peter Osgood, who was my first big name, Hadn't been fit when I signed him and he hadn't really scored, but he scored in that game. That was his first goal. And uh, at half time, I'm looking at the fella putting the scores up and we, the team was at Birmingham. We needed them yes, to lose. But yes, in fact, Birmingham won 2-1 at home to Norwich. Aye, well, you, you know what happened? You know, in those days, he used to put a lump of yeah. chalk up and he put it on the wrong hook. Huh. And I've gone in thinking we're all right here. Anyway, at the end, we, we were, even though we won, uh, we were down and... Um, the week after, I was running around the pitch in the afternoon on my own. I looked in the corner, there's Sir George Merrick and the chairman. And I thought, well, this is it. And uh, I stopped and the chairman said, manager, sort it out. Turned around, walked away. And Sir George winked at me and he smiled and he said, get rid of the pain in your side. Wow, brilliant. And up he went. Well, you carried on and uh, Southampton in the second division finished 13th and 6th mm -hmm. while you were rebuilding the team, which brings us on to the 1975-6 season uh -huh. and one that you'll never forget because this was... But before we talk about the cup final, in the th I'm talking purely from memory here, by the way. I haven't researched this. In the third round, you played at home to Aston Villa yeah. and you once told me a story about... That somebody threw the water out the bucket because they thought the game was as good as over and there was a goal in the last minute? Yes. Go on, tell me that one. Well, I can't remember who threw the water. was there. Jim Clooney, I think. Jim, you're, you're okay, I, yeah. he, he threw it out and, the, and the, the sponge was in the bucket and all that sort of thing. And, and I think the referee added a bit of time on because of the sponge. And uh, we got the goal, which took us to a replay. And, um, of course, we, we won the replay. How near you could have been to being out in the... So you beat Villa in the replay, you beat Blackpool, you played West Brom away and won a replay there, and then I came up to Bradford for the sixth-round tie against Bradford, Bradford City, yeah, yeah. a game I'll always remember for Southampton's winning goal from a cunning free kick. Yes. Go on. Jimmy McCallion and Peter Osgood, Aussie and see him still, bless him, hands on hips, waiting, and it was a Jimmy flicked the ball up and, yeah. and Aussie volleyed it in. Yes. Over the wall and volleyed it in. And on the train back, you were probably on it. All yeah. of us saying, what about... I said, well, I said, we do it regularly. Well, I'd never seen it in my life. Four in the Bradford wall. Cook making it five because the kick is nearly central. McCallion. So simple. A touch of class is what was required. And that's what Southampton produced. As cheeky a free kick as you would like to see. Peter Osgood just knocked the ball up. And Jim McCallion followed it over the wall and passed the surprise down to Brett. In it goes to the near post. Out it comes from Bly. 
Back in again from Johnson. And as he shoots the second time, it's all over. Bradford did their best, but it wasn't quite enough. The delight showing on the faces of the Southampton supporters and players. You were in the semi-finals now. Beat Crystal Palace at Stamford Bridge, 2-0. Yes. Um, now, what was, what was the atmosphere like leading up to that cup final? Because I think you were sixth in Division 2, four points off promotion. In some ways, it helped, John, because uh, I got a grip on the players. I mean, they were through the semi-final. I mean, remember Crystal Palace, uh, Malcolm Allison oh. and Terry Venables together. Yes, quite. And uh, Malcolm, I backed off the... The press bits because Malcolm was the big he had the big name, fedora and he was on, London yeah. and yeah and, and everybody wanted to talk and he was really sort of half mocking us and uh, I thought get on with it Malcolm well but I was able to say to my team hey uh, it's brilliant we're going to Wembley our priority is to get promoted you make sure we're going to win these league games looking back I remember looking at Man United I mean obviously I went to watch them play Ted and me if I couldn't make it Ted went as well Ted Bates that's where he was handy for me you know we we kept in touch all the time he would come down during the week and run around the pitch and all this sort of thing but we used to go to watch games in those days and uh, we put our reports together but I think between the semi and the final Man United took their foot off the pedal with league games a bit. They were being entertained, they were going to functions and this and the other because they didn't have to do anything in the league as we did. We had to get promoted mm. and I think that helped. We were still very competitive in every game right up to the final. Well, who can forget the final and you certainly won't and nor will many other Southampton fans. Um, the winning goal mm. scored by a man no longer with us, Bobby uh, Stokes. Uh, bless him. Yeah. And I want to ask you a question about that goal because um, <laughs> Clive Thomas refereed the game and he said in years after the final that Bobby Stokes might have been offside. And I thought to myself, golly, <laughs> in the terrible thought, if we'd had VAR in 1976, yes, it yes. might not have stood. I used to see Martin Buchan at one of the dinners in the summer at the end of the season. He was the centre-half uh, international player, wasn't he? A great player for Man United. Yeah, Scotland. And um, he would always make a beeline for me, you know, when you're together before you sit down for the meal. And he would walk towards me and he'd say, it was, and I'd say, it wasn't. And that's all we'd say all night. I wouldn't see him again. He said that every year. And uh, it was touch and go, but it was a, it was a great early ball from Jim McCallyog, Bobby Stokes, bless him, Normally, most players, nine out of ten, would have had two touches. One to control, one to hit. He didn't. He hit it first time. And I think that's helped before any decision would be made. I don't think he was offside. I mean, I would never admit that he was. Um, I think it was very, very close. I mean, what VAR would do, I wouldn't have a clue. But no, well, that's just anyway, we deserved to win it. And you did, did, and you won it. <laughs> and uh, you and I, went, we, we, we were walking down the tunnel. I, in those days, BBC and ITV were very competitive. Who would oh, get yeah. the FA Cup yeah. on the screen first? I grabbed you. You had the FA Cup with you. Yeah. We were walking down that tunnel at Wembley, and you probably don't remember this. Somebody threw something. From above, the crowd were bending over the, the barrier and it knocked my glasses off my nose. Yeah. And you stopped and you picked them up and put them back on my... And That's you had right. the FA Cup in the other hand. I know. Amazing story, that yeah. for me. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, Laurie. Anyway, down to the interview room, you were enjoying the celebrations. One thing you did say to me was how generous Tommy Doherty was in defeat. Oh, well, I mean, at the end of the game, you shook hands and everything like that. And um, by the way, you didn't go up for a medal. 
And I, I remember standing there. The managers didn't get medals. And uh, I stood there watching the teams go up because the Queen Course. was there. And I, I, what I was, look, I was looking at the people next to the Queen, my board of directors, and one or two had tears down their cheeks. And I looked at them and I thought, well done. You know, that's for you. You stood by me. Mm. And this is a, one of the best days of their life, you know, to sit with the Queen and to see their team pick the cup up. And... Um, Tommy and I stood watching this, and I did it three years later with Cluffy when we played each other in the League Cup. League Cup. And I mean, Cluffy turned to me and said, Right, up we go, lad. I said, Where? He said, Come on. And the players had been up, and he, he, I had to follow him. And we went up, there was it, 39 steps, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we walked along. Well, by then, everybody in the row was looking at the players running around, and they didn't see him and me. And he was going, Hello, hello, young man, hello, hello. And we eventually got to the middle. And it was an Italian gentleman from FIFA or UEFA who'd been presenting. And he looked and he hadn't got a clue. And two along from him was Alan Hardacre, who was a great aggressive, wasn't he, man, Alan, head of the league, football league. And he glowered up at us and he reached underneath and he got two little boxes out and he passed them to the Italian who presented it to Cluffy and Cluffy shook said, well done you've done a good job today keep it going well done and I got one and uh, thanked them and we went along went down on the pitch opened the boxes and there was no in no. they were empty um, and now I wrote to the FA I'd written it after the 76 and eventually there was a new chairman Mr Watmore yes and he wrote back and he said get your league managers to sort out who's around and we had a, a function on and um, people were coming from before 76 even. Anybody that was still around, managers and runners-up, came. Fantastic night, full of oldies there. Even Fergie and Mourinho, I think, was there because they didn't start giving medals out until Bob Paisley... I was going to say, it did change, didn't it? Changed it changed because yeah. they honoured Bob one night for something and they carried on from there. But what more listened to me and and we got everybody together that was still around. But certainly... That night, you're on a boat after the cup final. We were staying up in London, win, lose, or draw um, at the Royal Garden Hotel, which had hosted the World Cup team, 1966. Mm, and this is 76. And uh, we were going to go out, talk of the town, which was a night thing, club, was it? And uh, the wives were joining up. And uh, they came, I was having, my directors were in a nice room and I was, Anne and I were invited in to have a sherry before we went out. And uh, they came and said, excuse me, Mr. Mack, there's a phone call. I went halfway down the stairs, put my head in this little place, picked the phone, Tommy Doherty. I said, oh, Tom. He said, I just want to say well done. Congratulations. I said, blummin' heck, Tom, you know. Ah, that's amazing. He said, I'm crying. I'm crying. But he said, if I couldn't win it, I'm pleased you did. And he said, have a good night. And he put the phone down. Was it the next year, the year he after? Won it the year after, yeah. Well, the next year, no, no, we drew them. Ah. About the fourth or fifth round and um, at, at the Dell. So I rang him up. I said, Tommy, remember that phone call? He said, aye. I said, well, you can forget it. I said, because we are going to beat you, you know. And uh, we drew. And then in the replay, we drew after 90 minutes. And then the extra time, they won. And uh, I rang him eventually. And I said, good luck. And... Um, you might remember at the end of the game, him and Tommy Cavana, Tommy Cavana, the trainer, had followed the team around, came all the way around to where we were up on the, yeah. and um, Tommy and him held the cup 
and held it up in the air and he was pointing up and all the crowd thought they were pointing at him he was pointing at me and, and saying I've got it now Still to come on Motty Meats with Laurie McMenemy I gave Kevin the address he got a taxi there came in we sat talking halfway through the talk he said have you got a transfer form and Guy Askham being the accountant that he was said yes opened his briefcase pulled out a blank form and he signed a blank form I went heck, I can't believe that Kevin this is Motty Meats on Talk Sport. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sports with Laurie McMenemy. Well, listen, we've mentioned people like Peter Osgood and, and the late Bobby Stokes, but I want, to, I want to mention Mick Shannon here because his testimonial match was held on the Monday after the cup final. Yeah crowd of 29,000 at the Dell. And in fact, Shannon, of course, now a famous and successful racehorse owner, um, he'd been captain, hadn't he? Although it was Peter Rodriguez who was captain who received the cup. Mike was captain um, after Terry Payne had gone. And uh, we were playing, oh, I forget where it was, an away game. And um, we were in, don't forget, he was in the England squad. But we were in the second division, which wasn't good for an England player. And um, things weren't going too well at the time. And um, he actually said to me before this game, you know, I want to move. He wanted to go. But I didn't realise Man City had already been after him. And um, I just took the armband and I, I just gave it to Peter Rodriguez, who was probably the oldest around. And, uh, and Peter, don't forget, had played in two World Cups for Wales. Yes. Uh, and that's very experienced. And that's how that happened. And uh, and I, I remember as well, with due respect to Peter Rodriguez, uh, looking at me board of directors, I was looking at Mick Channon and thought, you should have picked that cup up. Yeah. He deserved to, you know. Mm. Now, he moved on to Manchester City, of course, eventually. But in the 77-78 season, two years after the FA Cup, you led Southampton back to Division 1. You finished runners-up in the old second division. Bolton were champions. Spurs were also promoted eventually. They finished third. In fact, you clinched your promotion against Spurs on the last day of the season. Mm -hmm. And I was there at the Dell. And I remember a very nervous nil-nil draw, Laurie. Oh, yes. But we had to get a point, didn't we? Yeah. We needed a point. And um, they were very relaxed. It was the last game and we were uptight a bit. But we got what we, we wanted and uh, it was good. Now, we'll talk in a minute about how you assembled a team 
of star names uh, down at Southampton. We'll talk about Alan Ball. But you certainly got into the headlines in February 1980 because you sprang it on the press at the time. The current European Footballer of the Year, Kevin Keegan, yeah. came from Hamburg to Southampton for £420,000. Well, that, that started, I mean, I'd obviously got my feet under the table then. I'd been there, what, seven years. The board were fantastic and um, we were in, lodged in the top flight. I'd read, like everybody else, that I mean, we all knew about Kevin and how well he'd done, but there was an article saying he was ready to move. I thought, well, he would do me. I wish I could get him. And then what I did, I rang Liverpool. Peter Robinson, Ken Fryer at Arsenal were the two legendary chief execs, secretaries, whatever you call them in those days. And uh, Peter was a gentleman, and I rang him up, just a general chat. Peter, how are you doing, etc. I said, hey, I said, uh, I see this Kevin Keegan might be moving. I said, do you put anything in the transfer when he went? You Because know, could, you could do that. You could, close. you could put a return. And he said, no, no, no. I said, ah, I said, I thought he might be playing with you. Anyway, good luck. You know, listen. Ooh, I put the phone down, right? I then had to try and get a contact number. I, I can't remember how I got that. Eventually, short story, I, I got a hold of him. And it's it's a family you never met, but you know each other, don't you? You know, and uh, the connection, a little bit of a connection. He was from Doncaster, Scunthorpe area. I'd managed up there, and we had something to talk about. And I said, "Hey, by the way, what's this about you? Maybe he's moving, you know." And um, and anyway, I kept putting the phone down and ring him back. And what I did at one stage, I said, "I tell you why I'm ringing you. We're moving into a new house, and the fella doing the house has said he'd like to put this." thing up on the wall, a light, a special light. It would go on the stair wall. And I said, the problem is you could only get them in Hamburg. And I said, he's given me the detail. And I said, I just wondered if I, uh, you know, could you help me? If I order it, would you, could you bring it back with him when he played for England? And that's how I started it all off. And then at one stage, I rang him and I said, have you ever, I said, I've been reading, you might go to Real Madrid, <clears throat> Barcelona. And I said, I know you've got a baby, haven't you? And I said, got to be careful, you know, in those countries when you're such a big name and you might have to have bodyguards for the wife and family. I kept putting the phone down. And then anyway, eventually I said, have you ever thought about coming home? And I said, what about us? You know, I've got a couple of your mates, Alan Ball, Mick Channing and that. And we agreed to meet up at uh, when he was coming to the next England game. And I then, I hadn't told anybody, I hadn't told the board. I then told the financial director, Guy Askham, I said, look, I need you to come. I said, do you know anybody that's got a house in London? And he had a friend who was a big supporter, lived uh, near the Royal Garden Hotel, ironically. And I said, don't tell him anything. Just ask if he can use his front room. And that's what happened. I even answered the door. He didn't even see Kevin come. And I gave Kevin the address. He got a taxi there. Came in, we sat talking, halfway through the talk, he said, have you got a transfer form? And I thought, oh, hell. And Guy Askham, being the accountant that he was, said, yes, opened his briefcase, pulled out a blank form, and he signed a blank form. I went, oh, my neck, I can't believe that, Kevin. He said, well, I've got something to tell you. So well, he said, I forgot your light. I said, the hell with the light, don't worry about that. And then two nights later, I'm watching him with England at Wembley, well, on the Wednesday, sitting, thinking, yeah, he's playing for me. Nobody knew. No. And it wasn't brought out until later on when he could tell his club and everything. And um, you remember because he was coming over and I got all the media in mm. and uh, they didn't want to be there. It was a Monday because you all had Monday off because all the games were Saturday. But every, I said, if you miss it, you'll regret it. Potter's Heron Hotel down in Southampton. He hadn't told his agent. He said, that's up to you. 
the fellow with the moustache, remember? Harry Swales. Harry Swales, bless him. And I rang Harry up. He didn't know. I said, Harry, your job on the day. And he met him at Southampton Airport, came down, tapped on the door. My chairman, who obviously knew then, was with me, got up, opened the door. Jean, his wife, walked in with a baby in her arms. And then Kevin walked in. There was a gasp. And all the media stood up and applauded. And that was the first time they knew. And then it went all around, didn't it? Tell you what, Laurie, not just Keegan, but you signed an awful lot of very experienced internationals in that, in that period at Southampton. I remember you invited me, well, more than once, to the pre-match lunch in the Royal Hotel on a uh, Saturday. The Royal and the I looked round the table, there were five England captains there. That's right. Shilton, Mills, <laughs> Watson. Hey, I mean, it was an incredible gathering. Uh, Charlie, in George, chairs, Charlie right? George played for you, <laughs> Frank <right>. Worthington <laughs> played for you. I could go on. I know. I now, know. was this a deliberate policy? Well, no, the deliberate policy was I could afford them. And the reason I could afford them was because their legs had gone. In other words, that's an expression we use, because they were past their best, really. I mean, Aussie was the first big name. And the reason, I mean, Aussie had fallen out with Dave Sexton, who was the manager, a good friend of mine. And um, I hadn't realised till afterwards, they really nearly got to hitting each other. And uh, uh, Aussie was going to take, he said he offered them out. And he would have made a big mistake because Dave's dad was a bare-knuckle yeah, fighter, wasn't he? He was. Ozzy, I think, changed things because all of a sudden, Terry wasn't the big name. Ozzy no. uh, came in. The crowd loved him. He asked if he could still live in Surrey, which was his stop there. That's right. And um, he was terrific in the dressing room and a great player on the pitch, of course. And uh, that was the start of it. And then other players came. I mean, like Charlie George, people like that. I would never have got them in that prime. But uh, if I'd had all of them in the prime, we'd have won everything. Yes, I think you would. Well, Keegan moved on to Newcastle, of course, two yes. years later, didn't he? Ah, yeah, that was disappointing because I wanted Kevin to stay. I mean, we're very good friends and we always keep in touch all the time. Kevin, we we had him at the home. I said, come on, Kevin, you know, you've got another year of your contract. And guy asked him and me, was sat with him. I said, is it money you're after or whatever? No, he thought we weren't ambitious enough. He thought we should have added to the team. Well, we were limited, really, and uh, he said he wanted to go. And the line that not many people heard, because I was in trouble with um, season ticket holders who bought tickets thinking he was going to be there. Yes. And and Kevin said to me, well, put it this way, if I don't go, I'll be hanging my boots up. And if Kevin said anything, he meant it. And uh, that's why he went. And, and I found out afterwards Arthur Cox was a massive uh, lover of Kevin, his football, and I, and I think maybe he'd had a phone call or two beforehand, but never mind. That was that was football, and uh, Kevin went there, and he was a legend up there as well. Now, while you gathered all these experienced players, the eighty three eighty four season, you were a major force. Semi finals of the FA Cup, yeah. and finished Southampton finished runners up to Liverpool in the League Championship, three points behind. Correct. <laughs> what a season that was! Terrific. Um, and, of course, this was the most successful league season in the club's history. Yeah. I think the list of players that you, that you assembled was quite fantastic. I mean, I remember as well, funnily enough, a story that you might want to confirm. You saw, in the early days of the overseas players coming, when Oz, uh, um, Ardiles and Villa came to Spurs, you signed a Yugoslav fullback called Ivan Golak. And I remember yeah. in one game, he pushed for too far up the field and the opposition scored. And you said to me, you said to him, Ivan, if you do that again, I'll kick your backside. Yeah, and true. he said, but Mr. Laurie, where I played, there was a sweeper behind me. Yes. Do you remember right. that? That's right. Yeah, well, Ivan, we, well, we call him Ivan. He was Ivan Golach. Yeah. 
And um, Bobby Robson as well is saying these two Dutchmen. I don't know who was first. Buren and Tyson, yeah. They were, there was Bobby, um, who was at Tottenham? Keith Birkinshaw. Keith and me. We were the first three, the same foreigners, because I had Ivan Golas and then eventually the goalkeeper, Ivan Katalinic, who was a quiet lad, but Golas was a real character. But what a player. Yes. Oh, and and he loved to go forward. And uh, (laughs) you're right, because I used to say, you know, have you ever heard, thought about the gap you leave behind? He said, oh, well, we should have a sweeper in. (laughs) And as it happened, eventually I I played with a sweeper. You played with one. And uh, that allowed fullbacks to go forward. And that's what makes me smile. Some of the oldie managers, when we're together, we we hear all about this what is it pushing and all uh, no, when they're on about stopping the opposition uh, and we we call that when you lose the ball try and get it back again you know and and they play with three men at the back we did that years ago and it enabled you to use three defenders and uh, your fullbacks could go and um, the, the spare man would fill the hole for them we played at Everton the first game but did that we're losing 2-0 at half time Peter Shilton did his nut and said boss he said they get on top of me when they're attacking. I said, whoa, hang on. When that happens, the spare man, go forward, go through the two. And we drew 2-2. Two, two. We were learning as we went along. Sure. You know. Now, but, before, uh, before yeah. we leave Southampton, I must mention Alan Ball uh, and the know. influence he had as a player and your relationship with him and, of course, sadly departed since. Yeah. Great character, Ballie. Well, Alan Ball, uh, I knew his dad, you know, and... Um, when I eventually got Alan, the player, down to speak to me, there was other clubs that wanted him. He agreed to come down and speak to me. Don't forget we were in the second division. He came up to my office. I got up to walk around the desk. He put his hand out. I walked past him and locked the door. Came back, shook his hand, sat down. So what did you do that for? I said, you're not getting out till you sign. And he did sign. He got a phone call straight away from his dad. What the devil are you doing signing for a club like that? You know, because he could have gone elsewhere. But um, some he enjoyed. And, of course, Mick Channon, big part of his. And he was fantastic. In the dressing room, on the pitch, he would be worn out, tired. But when the whistle went, he lit up. He lit up. And the best thing ever happened for him was he never thought he'd play at Wembley again, ever. You know, he won the World Cup and all that. And at his age, 1979, we got to the League Cup final. And when he was in the dressing room at Wembley, it was worth everything we'd done just to see him sat there. And he went out and he was like 10 foot tall. Well, he was a fantastic fella, Paulie, and we We all miss him. I used to say to him, he was captain, uh, before he went out, I'd shake his hand. Hey, let's have some one touch today, Bowley. So half a touch to you. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with Laurie McMenemy. Now then. End of an era, 1985. Southampton finished fifth in Division One. Yeah. Laurie McMenemy decides to leave the club and goes to Sunderland. Um, I got a knock on my door one day and I opened it and we live in a village down in Hampshire and stood on the doorstep was the chairman of Sunderland. How the devil he'd found where I lived, I couldn't tell you. He'd come all the way down and he wanted to offer me the job. It coincided... People looking back say I went for the money. It was a massive amount of money compared to what I'd been getting. But that was, that helped, obviously, family. But it coincided with things changing a bit. I think after 12 years, things were quite repetitive for me. It was the same day in, day out and everything. Plus, there'd been changes in the boardroom. A lot of the oldie world had left. 
And chairman in football, we started to get together and have meetings. My chairman, Alan Woodford, a lovely man, uh, but he'd started to go to these meetings, and I think he was listening to other chairmen, what they did and what they didn't. And I, I wanted to sign a player. You wouldn't remember. It'd be, he, he was a Scots, Scotsman who played in Belgium. He was a midfield player, but his name began with B, Bert or some name like that. I heard about him, had him watched, and I fancied signing him. I brought it up at the board meeting, as I always did in the years before, and they all would say, find out how much and come back. And he didn't. He said, can he tackle? I said, can he tackle? I said, leave it, Chairman. I went home, I said to one, pack your bag. That was the final thing. Things had been building up and building up. I'd never been questioned on a signing before, but I think he'd listened to other people. And uh, I went to Sunderland, and really it was the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. Really? Well, it was because I didn't realise the dressing room and, and some of the players, the way things were. Um, but also, I, I wasn't just manager, I was on the board. That was a mistake. I shouldn't have accepted that. Uh, managers normally go in at the end of a board meeting, talk about football and get out. If you're on the board, you're there at the beginning. And I didn't realise the battle in the boardroom um, between the chairman and another gentleman who represented the supporters, really, down to a broad, uh, thick accent compared to the chairman who spoke very posh. And I couldn't believe the battle's going on. He would say something, the chairman would look at the secretary and say, ignore that comment, uh, don't put that in the minutes. And he kept that all the way through. I'm thinking, what the devil's going on here? At the end, he'd say, hey, any other business? And uh, this bloke would say, yes, you are... And he swear at him, swear at him, what you were, and he turned around and said, put that in the minutes and walked out the door. <laughs> and that was one example. Another one, the same man put the players' wages in the paper once, and, they, and it was on TV and everything. And the next day, he wanted to get on the bus to go with the team. Good morning, lads. And the lads are looking at him, he's put their wages in the night before. So things like that were happening. And then the crowd... Uh, turned on me, to be fair, and on the new chairman, because the other one had resigned. I'd been there two years then, and I needed the extra year. I think I maybe would have got it right, but the the crowds uh, came outside the ground, scratched two or three cars. One of them was my, one was the new chairman. And he said to me a couple of days after, right, if you don't go, I'll go. And, of course, they needed him there to put money in. And, I, and that, that was the decision that had to be made. But it was a disaster in a lot of ways, really. Well, after leaving Sunderland, you spent a little time out of the game. Uh, must have been sort of a bit different for you, that after day-to-day -day for years. Uh, but when you came back, it was a completely new role, the assistant manager to Graham Taylor with England, Laurie. Well, when I came away, John, from Sunderland, what, 1987 it would be, I had a three-year period and I did media until I was doing TV abroad, was at a World Cup, I think, and I was in the same hotel, and you were in that hotel. Yes, I was, yes. And Graham Taylor was there yeah. working for TV. Correct. And the two of us had a meal together, and I said, listen, what's this rumour about you going with England? It hadn't been made public. And he said, yes. And he said, I want to talk to you about it. He said, will you come with me? Well, I couldn't turn that down. And I mean, title, I think, was assistant manager or something, but I managed the England B team yes. and the under-21 team. You did. And the B team is what I think we should have still had. It was where you could put players in who were too old for the under-21 and on the edge of the first team, and it gave them international experience. I mean, we had eight games in the mm. 
what a three-year period I was there. It, we played, it won six and drew two. But the results didn't matter. Even though they win the under-21s, I think we won the Toulon tournament twice. It's great to win, but it's given them an international experience away from their clubs, finding out who's ready for the first team. And that was my job with Graham. Well, I could talk a lot, and I know you could too, talk a lot about Graham Taylor yeah. and what he did for Watford and yeah, what brilliant. Graham Taylor he was. But we've got to refer to two things that happened while you were in tandem with him, with the, with the England team. The European Championship finals of 92, you'd qualified, obviously. Yeah. And of course, it was the, the match that nobody ever forgets uh, that knocked England out when Graham decided to substitute Gary Lineker. Do you remember what you, your thoughts were at the time? I was on the bench with him and um, he was urging the spare man, the, the ref, linesman, fourth official, to get the yeah, to get the number up. And we thought, oh, what's he doing? What's he? Because he normally he would talk to me about it, mm. and he didn't. No, we didn't know until the number went up. And when it went up, I couldn't believe it. And Gary Lineker looked; he couldn't believe it either. He brought Gary off. He wasn't happy, and he put Alan Smith on. I yes, think. correct. Lovely lad, Alan. But but you don't take your goal scorers off normally. You know, when you need a, a goal. And, and Gary was the sort that could nick a goal against all odds, wasn't he? Of course he was. And Alan would have needed a warm-up, etc., etc. But that didn't go down well. Then it moved on to the qualifiers for the 1994 World Cup in America. Uh, and, of course, again, everybody knows the story about the game in Rotterdam when Ronald Koeman wasn't sent off and then scored uh, a free kick and Graham said, you've cost me my job. Actually, it was a defeat in Norway the year before that really cost England, if I remember rightly, because yeah. I was there. Yeah. Um, anyway, look, to cut a long story short, um, that was really the, the end of Graham's tenure as the England manager. And I want to ask you one thing because it's been well reported. He had a film crew following him around that year um, who he'd given complete access to. Yeah. Uh, was that, in hindsight, a good decision? It wasn't. I didn't know anything about it until the day they sort of turned up. And um, I asked him what it was about, and uh, he said what they were going to do. And I said, are you sure that's the right thing, Graham?" And he said to me, that's my decision. And I had to leave it at that. And um, I didn't think it was the right thing because it followed us all over the place. And I mean, when you've got a camera following you, you, you try to put it on a bit and try to be different. And, and the players didn't like it either, you know. And, uh, and also, don't forget, in that squad, um, you know him better than most people. He had people there like Paul Gascoigne. Now, I, I often joke about it. People say, when I was with England, I'll say, well, Gazza and me were both born in Gateshead. Mm. And uh, I often say, oh, that's why I was with England. I was there as an interpreter. But it did help, Graham, that the fact that I was able to get a hold of Gazza. And because I remember, see, we would play, the under-21 would play on the Tuesday night. And then I'd join up, they would go home, and I'd join up with Graham with the first team on the Wednesday. Mm. And then he would have a team talk ready mm. before the game. And I would make sure I'd go because Gaza sat in the back row, high up. And I remember going up, and he, Graham was a big one on the blackboard and sheets of paper and going through. And the players were bored with it. And Gaza would say, what, What's he doing? What's he talking about? And I'd say, Shut up and listen, you, you know, because he was a natural born gifted player, Gaza. Um, but I mean, he was a character. Like, I mean, we were in a restaurant once, and the waitress said to him, Do you like Scampi? Oh, he says, I like anything to do with Walt Disney. But Graham found him hard because he, he couldn't understand at that level. He didn't have that sense of humour with him. And I don't think he ever got the, the best out of him. 
but he was a great manager, uh, Graham. I mean, if you look at what he did at Watford, incredible. And, yeah, uh, we're not. We're he not, was second in the league as well. Got to Wembley. Take nothing away from the man. No, he was a no. real top football person. Yeah, he was unfortunate. Now, having been an assistant manager to an international team, yes. Following a short spell back at Southampton as director of football, when I think we can just slightly... Buy, well, it was the chairman, Rupert Lowe, wasn't it? That was a strange... Oh, yes. But what I want to concentrate on here is you became an international manager in your own right yes. with Northern Ireland. That's right. Well, that came right out of the blue. And would I be interviewed and uh, I was given the job? I took as my staff, Pat Jennings, yes. a legend, obviously, um, Joe Jordan, mm. who played in two or three World Cups, and yes. played for me at Southampton, at Southampton and Chris yeah. Nickel, who yes. played for Ireland. Yeah. Uh, all of them wonderful men. And Chris, I put in charge of the under-21s. Joe and Pat came with me. So I had the best staff of anybody, but you didn't have the players. No. And even now, I mean, England are suffering now, lack of players in the top flight. Uh, I used to see every dressing room had, in those days, three or four Scotsmen, and he had a battle. And he had four or five Welshmen. He had a choir. No, you haven't got any Scots and Welsh coming in from those countries. Uh, in those days, Northern Ireland had one or two, well, three or four playing in the top flight. And the job was hard. But I did enjoy being an international manager, yeah. Well, Laurie, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you because you've been a huge presence in football for a terrifically long time. Uh, an unmistakable name and an unmistakable voice and you've also been a very good friend to me thank you very much well it's, I've appreciated your friendship John and uh, you're a legend and you always have been and uh, it's you know, been great to know you I've John. got one last little story to tell you in the 86 World Cup in Mexico and by now you were a veteran on the BBC team you'd done several and I always remember there was one day when little Bob Abrahams who was great with us Bob, a friend of ours he, but he said <laughs> You know, there was some mix-up and Jimmy Hill was going to do something that he wasn't going to do and, and Bob Abraham said to you, Laurie, he said, how do you fancy a bit of radio? Uh, and you looked at him and you said, Bob, give me a white coat and I'll sell ice creams. Happy <laughs> <laughs> uh, days. The undisputed world heavyweight champion of football commentators in another knockout interview. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 